This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of humeral avulsion glenohumeral ligament, or haggle, from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. So as a quick summary, humeral avulsion of the glenohumeral ligament, or a haggle lesion, is an injury to the inferior glenohumeral ligament causing instability and or pain, and a missed cause of recurrent shoulder instability. Diagnosis requires suspicions of injury and can be noted as an inferior pouch irregularity on MRI. Non-operative first-line treatment for acute presentation includes sling immobilization and physical therapy, while operative treatment is recommended for recurrent instability. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence, haggle lesions make up 1.6% of patients with shoulder pain. In terms of the demographics, males are more commonly affected than females, with 94% of injuries occurring in males. The average age is 25 to 30. As far as the anatomic location, the anterior band is the most common, making up 93% of haggle lesions, and these lesions can take place medially in the glenoid versus laterally in the humerus. Failure of the IGHL at the labral complex makes up 40% of cases, intrasubstance tears make up 35% of cases, and the humeral insertion make up 25% of cases. In terms of risk factors, 10% of recurrent anterior shoulder dislocators have a haggle lesion. 27% of shoulder instability patients without a Bancart lesion have a haggle lesion. And finally, 18% of failed anterior stabilization have a haggle lesion. Now let's talk about the etiology. With respect to pathophysiology, as far as the mechanism of injury of a haggle lesion, hyperabduction and external rotation is the main mechanism. This can be seen in diving, football, basketball, volleyball, surfing, skiing, and a motor vehicle collision. Associated orthopedic conditions include labral tears in 25% of cases, rotator cuff tears in 23% of cases, a Hillsacks deformity in 17% of cases, and a bony bankart. Now let's talk about some relevant anatomy. We'll go over static stabilizers, dynamic stabilizers, the capsuloligamentous complex, blood supply, nervous system, and biomechanics. So starting with static stabilizers, the ones to know include the glenohumeral ligaments, the glenoid labrum, which is the attachment point of the glenohumeral ligaments, and it also deepens the glenoid cavity. Static stabilization is also achieved by articular congruity inversion, as well as the negative intraarticular pressure. Dynamic stabilizers include rotator cuff muscles, the rotator interval, the biceps long head, the periscapular muscles, and the deltoid. In terms of the rotator cuff muscles, the primary biomechanical role of the rotator cuff is stabilizing the glenohumeral joint by compressing the humeral head against the glenoid. Now let's talk about the capsuloligamentous complex, and this includes the coracohumeral ligament, the superior glenohumeral ligament or the SGHL, the middle glenohumeral ligament or the MGHL, and the inferior glenohumeral ligament or the IGHL. The IGHL has a hammock-like structure. The anterior band is between 2 and 4 o'clock, the posterior band is between 7 and 9 o'clock, and it also contains the axillary pouch. Keep in mind there are two types of insertion of the IGHL on the humerus. There's a collar-like attachment close to the articular margin, and a V-shaped attachment close to the cartilage rim with the apex distal on the metaphysis. Now let's talk about the blood supply. The blood supply to the glenohumeral ligaments is an anastomosis of branches of humeral-sided and scapular-sided vessels. Laterally, you have the anterior humeral circumflex artery and the posterior humeral circumflex artery. Medially, you have the suprascapular artery and the circumflex scapular arteries. 
the watershed area anterolaterally is near the humeral insertion of the anterior capsule, 3 cm medial to the intertubercular groove. Moving on to the nervous system, the axillary nerve is close to the hagal lesion at the 6 o'clock position, specifically 2 to 7 mm. However, this is typically overestimated on MRI by 2 mm. Now let's talk about biomechanics. The glenohumeral ligaments are most taut between 45 to 90 degrees of abduction. The anterior band of the IGHL provides anterior and inferior restraint. This is taut at 90 degrees of abduction and external rotation. And the posterior band of the IGHL provides posterior and inferior restraint and is taut at 90 degrees of abduction and internal rotation. Now let's talk about the classification of Hagel lesions. And the one to know is the West Point classification by Bowie Mansfield. So the West Point classification is based on three factors. Anterior or posterior involvement, presence or absence of bony avulsion, and the presence of associated labral pathology, or floating. So anterior involvement makes up 93% of hagal lesions. You have anterior hagal lesions, which make up 55%, anterior bony hagal lesions, which make up 17%, and a floating AIGHL, which makes up 21%. Posterior involvement makes up 6% of hagal lesions, where posterior hagal lesions make up 2%, posterior bony hagal lesions make up 0%, and a floating PIGHL makes up 4%. Now let's talk about the presentation of hagal lesions. In terms of the history, make sure to find out the position of the arm at injury, the direction of instability, the presence or absence of recurrent instability, and if there is a failed surgery to correct the instability. Symptoms typically include severe persistent pain after the instability event and recurrent instability. On physical exam, provocative tests include an apprehension and relocation test, a load and shift test, posterior stress and a posterior jerk test, and a sulcus sign in neutral and external rotation. In terms of neurovascular exam, make sure to check axillary nerve function. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a true AP radiograph in neutral and internal rotation, a scapular Y view, and an axillary lateral. Findings may include glenoid rim fractures, hypoplasia, and or fractures of the humeral head. Optional views include a Garth view, which is a 45 degree oblique radiograph in the anterior plane a fleck of bone inferior to the anatomic neck may indicate avulsion of the medial cortex. Finally, an orthogram is another optional study where normally dye appears in the axillary pouch, bicep sheath, and the subcoracoid recess. However, in a hagal lesion, the dye escapes inferiorly in a crescent shape. Moving on to a CT scan, this has lower utility than an MRI, but you can consider it in combination with an orthogram if there is a contraindication to MRI. In terms of views, the Hagel lesion is best seen on a sagittal view. In terms of findings, Oberlander described bony Hagel lesions posterior to the MGHL. An MRI is the gold standard for diagnosis of a Hagel lesion. Indications include recurrent instability or persistent pain after an instability event. An MR arthrogram should be done if more than 7 to 10 days from the injury. In terms of the important views, the coronal oblique T2-weighted fat-suppressed MRI and the sagittal oblique T2-weighted fat-suppressed MRI are the important views in the setting of a Hagel lesion. Findings include a J-sign, which is pathognomonic for a Hagel lesion. The inferior pouch normally appears U-shaped, however a Hagel lesion has the appearance of a J-shaped inferior pouch. And in this setting, the dye may leak through the tear inferiorly. Chronic lesions may be difficult to see due to scar of the IGHL to the capsule. The differential diagnosis for Hagel lesions include an anterior bancar tear slash anterior inferior labrum tear 
or a posterior bankheart slash posterior inferior labrum tear. You can learn more about these diagnoses in separate podcast episodes. Treatment of a hagal lesion can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes sling immobilization and physical therapy, and this is indicated as first-line treatment when no instability is present. In terms of outcomes, there is 90% recurrence rate of instability with non-operative treatment. Operative options include an open hagal repair or an arthroscopic hagal repair. An open hagal repair is indicated for a young person with primary shoulder dislocation and a high recurrence rate. It's also indicated when there's associated injuries, failed non-operative management, recurrent instability, or persistent pain or instability after a missed hagal lesion with a bankheart repair. Techniques include an open anterior repair, which is indicated for an anterior hagal lesion, or an open posterior repair, which is indicated for a posterior hagal lesion. In terms of the prognosis after an open hagal repair, there is a low incidence of postoperative instability following open repair, and there is no reported difference between open and arthroscopic repair. Arthroscopic hagal repairs are indicated for the same reasons as an open repair. In terms of the technique, an anterior arthroscopic repair is indicated for an anterior hagal lesion. Remember that an arthroscopic repair has less soft tissue dissection compared to an open repair, and there's also less damage to the subscapularis compared to an open repair. A posterior arthroscopic repair is indicated for a posterior hagal lesion, and this approach avoids splitting the rotator cuff muscles. In terms of prognosis, again, there is no reported difference between open and arthroscopic repair. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So in terms of sling immobilization and physical therapy, the technique involves a four-week sling immobilization and shoulder strengthening following a sling immobilization period. Open anterior repair has the advantages of visualization of the neurovascular structures, and this is less technically difficult. The approach is a deltopectoral approach, and there are three subscapularis approaches. The subscapularis tendon can be released leaving a one-centimeter cuff, the subscapularis sparing technique described by Arciero and Mazaka, in which an L-shaped incision is made in the lower one-third subscapularis tendon, and finally, a subscapularis sparing technique by Batia, in which the lower border subscapularis is identified by the anterior humeral circumflex, the pectoralis major tendon is retracted inferiorly, then you will retract the subscapularis superiorly, and keep in mind that the subscapularis is usually scarred inferiorly with a hagal lesion. Now let's talk about the technique for an open anterior repair. In terms of bone preparation, the medial humeral neck is rasped to remove scar tissue at the 6 to 8 o'clock position. In terms of instrumentation, a suture anchor is placed in the inferior humeral neck, and sutures are pulled through the anterior inferior capsule. In terms of complications specific to this treatment, axillary nerve entrapment is the one to know. Use caution as the nerve is within 3 millimeters of the inferior capsule. As far as rehabilitation, the anterior hagal protocol has three major stages, 0 to 4 weeks, 4 to 10 weeks, and 10 to 12 weeks. At 0 to 4 weeks, you will use a sling, and in terms of therapy, passive forward flexion to 90 degrees and external rotation to 30 degrees with the arm at the side is allowed. At 4 to 10 weeks, assisted active forward flexion to 140 degrees is permitted, as well as external rotation to 40 degrees with the arm at the side. And finally, at 10 to 12 weeks, external rotation is permitted with 45 degrees of abduction. Now let's talk about open posterior approach. The approach is the Judea approach, where the deltoid is bluntly spread in line with the fibers, and the interval between the infraspinatus and teres minor is utilized. Now let's talk about the technique. 
The bone work involves roughening the bone inferiorly on the humeral neck to create a bleeding surface. Instrumentation will involve placing suture anchors in the inferior humeral neck. In terms of rehabilitation, the posterior hackle protocol has two major stages, 0 to 6 weeks and 6 to 12 weeks. At 0 to 6 weeks, passive abduction to 45 degrees, forward flexion to 45 degrees, and external rotation to 30 degrees is permitted. Internal rotation is limited to the arm against the belly. At 6 to 12 weeks, there should be no internal rotation with the arm abducted more than 45 degrees. In terms of complications, axillary nerve entrapment again is the one to know, so use caution because again the nerve is within 3 millimeters of the inferior capsule. Now let's talk about the anterior arthroscopic approach, and the approach is a three-portal approach. The anterior superior portal under the biceps, the anterior inferior portal above or below the subscapularis, and the posterior portal. Accessory portals can include the anterior inferior slash 5 o'clock portal, the 7 o'clock posterior inferior portal, otherwise known as the Davidson and Rittenberg portal, and the Batia portal slash the axillary pouch portal. So the anterior inferior or 5 o'clock portal is 1 centimeter inferior to the upper border of the subscapularis tendon and is placed in the neutral position to protect the musculocutaneous nerve. The 7 o'clock posterior inferior portal, or the Davidson and Rivenberg portal, is 2 to 3 centimeters inferior to the posterior viewing portal. Finally, the Batia portal slash the axillary pouch portal is 3 centimeters inferior to the lower border of the posterior lateral acromial angle, and is 2 centimeters lateral to the standard posterior portal. Now, let's talk about the technique of an anterior arthroscopic repair. In terms of bone work, the humeral neck is roughened with an arthroscopic burr, and suture anchors are placed at the IGHL insertion on the humeral neck. In terms of soft tissue, a suture passing device is placed through the 5 o'clock portal, and a horizontal mattress suture is made through the capsular tissue to the neck. In terms of instrumentation, you will use a suture lasso and suture anchors with a curved guide. You can wait until all sutures are passed to tie knots. Complications include axillary nerve damage and arthrofibrosis. Finally, let's talk about posterior arthroscopic repair. In terms of the approach, you may switch the viewing portal from posterior to anterior using a 30-degree scope, and this approach can also involve an accessory inferior lateral posterior portal. With respect to technique, as far as bone work, a shaver and a burr are used on the posterior humeral neck. In terms of instrumentation, you will place two suture anchors into the inferior humeral neck posteriorly, and a curved guide with an all-suture anchor is helpful. In terms of the soft tissues, use a suture passer to pass sutures through the posterior IGHL, then repair the IGHL to the posterior humeral neck, tension the sutures with the arm externally rotated, and repair the IGHL first before the bank heart with combined injuries. Now let's talk about some postoperative complications. Arthrofibrosis with loss of external rotation is treated with physical therapy for external rotation stretching. In terms of axillary nerve injury, Again, remember that the axillary nerve is 10 millimeters inferior to the glenoid and 2.5 millimeters inferior to the capsule. Chondrolysis is another potential complication, and as far as risk factors, this has been reported with thermal capsulography. In addition, over-tightening anteriorly may be associated with accelerated posterior wear. Pulmonary embolism has an incidence of 0.6% with shoulder arthroscopy. And finally, in terms of recurrence of instability, this is very rare, but per systematic review, this is seen in 0 out of 25 operatively and 9 out of 10 non-operatively. The odds ratio is 0.05 recurrence with operative versus non-operative treatment with a p-value of 0.006. In terms of prognosis for HAGA lesions, 
it is good with adequate recognition and treatment. That's all for this review about humeral avulsion glenohumeral ligament or HAGA lesions. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.